This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning. How are you doing today? Doing all right? Online, doing all right? Awesome. Okay. <laughs> we assume you are with us. Hey, I'm excited. We're starting a brand new series today, and I'm really looking forward to jumping into it with you. But I wanted to just start right at the, at the front and say, hey, there's a book that I would highly recommend you getting a hold of. It's called God Has a Name. It's by a pastor in the Portland area, John Mark Comer, and this is really good stuff. If you've ever wondered, like, hey, what, what is God like? Who is he? He just takes us to the scriptures and points out things that God has revealed to himself. And so this is just a resource I'd highly recommend there. If you're like, how do I get a hold of it? On your way out, you'll see some QR scanners that you can click on and find a book on Amazon, and there you go. So super easy to read as well. So does that sound good? All right, okay. Are you, are you with me? It's, it's so fun to be here and teach, but sometimes with the mask, you're just kind of like, okay, and then this other thing. And All right, so we're going to jump in. So I'm super excited about this, this series we're going to be in. Saying, look at what's God like? Because I, I think the more we can have a clearer picture of what God is like and who God is, the more we see life more clearly. Like, not just the, the reality of who God is and what God is like, but the more we see the reality of, of us in, in that space of being made to be like him in this world and, and the point of life itself. And then even, I think, we have a better handle of the purpose and meaning of life. So I can't wait to jump into this. But as we, as we chase this question, I think we have to be careful because it could be a little challenging if we don't go about this in, in, in the right way. Here's what I mean. Imagine that we wanted to get a chance to get to know each other a little bit better. Like, not that there's been any a challenge with that COVID at all, but imagine we're like, okay, let's go. And so we go sit down at Pete's or Starbucks or wherever it is, and, and we just start to talk, and it's a chance for us to get to know each other. And so then I start to talk, and I start to tell you all about you. Wouldn't that be weird? I started to tell you what you liked and what your preferences were and what I thought. Like, you'd be like, whoa, hold on, like... Let me tell you who I am. And see, I think if we're not careful, I think it's really easy for us to, to actually do that with God, isn't it? To just kind of look at life from our perspective, to look at the world from, from our angle, and to suddenly say, well, this is what God must be like. And, and I think if we're not careful, it's really easy to do that. And, and I think this is actually why we see so much diverse thinking about what God is like in our world. Whether it's different religions or just different flavor of the day. I mean, you just drive around Sonoma County and you're going to have a million different opinions of what God is like. And, and so I think like, like we, maybe we just need to be careful with that. So a couple centuries ago, there was a, a poet, John Godfrey Sachs. And he wrote this poem called The Blind Men and the Elephant. So I don't know if you're familiar with it or, or not. But the, the point of his poem was this. That, 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 that if we were to envision God was like an elephant, then... All of us are like a bunch of blind men trying to figure out what God is like. And so you have one guy approaching one aspect of the elephant and like grabs a hold of the tail and is just feeling the tail and be like, ooh, this feels like a rope. So the elephant is like a rope. And, but on the other end, you got the guy holding on to the trunk and he's like, no, it's like a giant serpent. And then you got one guy holding on to the tusk and like, no, the, the, it's like a spear. So, so God must be like, like a warrior or, or somebody grabs a hold of the leg and it's just like, no, God's like, like a palm tree. This is like vacation. And so they have all these different thoughts and ideas about God, but because they're all blind, they don't see the big picture. They only see their one part, and then they start to argue and fight about what, that, what that's all about. 
And the point of what, what he's trying to make in his poem, in this analogy, is that, hey, nobody has really the whole picture. Like, everyone maybe just has one grasp of what the elephant is like, but here's the thing. No one truly sees God clearly. That's the point of what this is trying to make. And now, on one hand, I can really appreciate what this is trying to say, because I think, like, maybe we should be willing to approach the subject, what's God like, with some humility, be willing to say like, hey, maybe you've had some thoughts or experiences, maybe we could listen to one another. So I can really appreciate that idea. But on the other hand, I think this analogy makes some assumptions that actually aren't helpful or actually go against the very thing that it's trying to make. So the point is that no one sees God clearly, therefore we can't really know anything about God. I'm not sure if that's true. And here's why, because the the analogy assumes something it assumes that there is an actual truth behind the stumblings of everyone trying to figure out what the elephant is like. The analogy assumes that there is someone who sees clearly enough to say, no, it's an elephant. There's an outside observer that has the picture. And I think as I'm chasing this question, I would like to know who that person is who sees things clearly, because if they see more clearly than me, I want to listen to who they are. That's the person I would love to discover. It kind of just begs the question, who is this person that actually has the truth of the picture? I would like to learn from them, please. But something else that it assumes about this analogy, that, that, hey, no one actually sees God clearly. No one can really know who God or what God is like. Again, I'm not sure that's true, because I, I can think of one person Who knows what God is like? God. Like maybe God has some opinions (laughs) about himself. Maybe God has some thoughts about himself. So what if, what if instead of us trying to tell each other what the elephant is like? Like what if instead of us trying to tell each other what God is like? What if instead of us trying to tell God what God is like, we let God tell us what God's like? Like, what if we actually chose to let God self-identify? And then we choose to listen to what he has to say about what he's like. Wouldn't that be interesting? And so we're going to chase after this together in this series that we're going to go over for the next few weeks. And and when you come to the, the, the writings of this book, the scriptures we have in this collection of books that we call the Bible, we discover some interesting things. One of the things that we see is that there's this attempt by God to reveal himself to the human race. He's trying to identify who he is, and, and we discover that God has spoken. He's not silent. He's not like a Bette Midler God watching us from a distance. He's actively involved. Young people, you don't know who that is. Just look it up on Spotify later. <laughs> but he's, he's actually involved in the process of the world and what's going on, and we see that as he begins to move, it's pretty epic. And, and if we're willing to listen, we might just discover who God is and what God's like. And so this, this book starts with this very beginning story, and it just assumes right out of the gate that God exists, that there is a God, and, and God is at work, and we, be, we see early on that God's pretty awesome. Like, God just speaks, and stuff happens. Reality comes into existence because God just says, be, and it listens. And so we see some extraordinary things, but it's not until God actually begins to make himself known that we begin to see what he's like. And we start to see this when God meets this guy Moses and begins to identify himself to Moses. 
So what I want to do is take a look at some encounters that we see, close encounters of the epic kind that we see between God and Moses, because in these encounters, God is trying to say, this is who I am, and this is what I'm like. And so if we're going to look in the book of Exodus at some of these close encounters, and so I don't know if you're familiar with the story or the life of Moses, like if you saw the cartoon Once Upon a Time, The Prince of Egypt, or you watched like, like the old school Charlton Heston movie, or the new one with Christian Bell, which wasn't good, but I don't know if you've seen any of those. Like, those are the stories of what's going on. And so God's at work in the story. He's wanting to actually begin to rescue his people out of slavery. They've been in generational slavery in Egypt. And so he approaches Moses and says, Moses, let's roll. That's my paraphrase. (laughs) Moses, let's move. And I want to use you to actually set my people free. And so we see this extraordinary story begin to take place. And, And so it starts with Moses just wandering around in the wilderness, and he sees this bush on fire, and he's like, that's not normal. What do I do with this? And so this is what we see as we jump into this first encounter. Exodus 3, verse 4, it says, When the the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. That would be a weird moment if you're Moses. He's like, here I am, Moses replied. Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. And so you have this just this first moment of encounter, and and God begins to identify, hey, Moses, I've been a part of your your family story for a long, long time. And, And God's like, hey, this is holy ground, Moses. Take off the Birkenstocks. And Moses' response isn't like, oh, cool. Moses' response is like, oh, no, what does this mean? And so then they have this big conversation, and God's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you to go to Egypt. You're going to be my representative. I'm going to have a big showdown with the gods of Egypt, and it's going to be epic, and I'm going to make them look small. And then Moses, like, Pharaoh's going to set my people free. And, and Moses is like, who am I? I can't do this. And they're having this big old long dialogue where Moses is like, ah, and God's like, get there. You know, it's just like fun. You can read it. But then finally, Moses is like, okay, I'm going to do this. But he's like, God, i got to really tell them who you are when I go to the people. And so we jump a little bit further in the story. And it says, but Moses protested. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they'll ask, what's his name? Then what should I tell them? Like, God, not just that you're the God of our ancestors, but like, who are you? Did you know that God has a name? And this is God identifying himself in the pages of the story. And this is the first time we see him saying his name. And so God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's a really unique name. Any of you name your kid that? Like, no. And what God's trying to say is, Moses, I am the one who is. I am self-existent. I am separate from all other things. Everything else that is flows out of who I am. I'm the source of it all. I'm the source of life and truth and beauty and goodness. Moses, I am. That's my name. And so God said, tell them this is who sent you. And then God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. 
And so this is this first epic encounter where God begins to tell Moses his name. And I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase Yahweh before. Sometimes in the English Bible, it's just translated as the Lord, and it's all capital letters to capture the essence of this. But Moses is, or God is giving him a name, and in the Hebrew, there's no vowels. There's only consonants, and so all we have are these letters that are Y-H-W-H. And this is God saying, here's my name, and it just means this God who is. I'm the one who exists. And so here's God revealing his identity. And in this first encounter, he tells us his name and that he is unlike anyone or anything else. Moses, I am other. (laughs) Moses, I am holy. That's why I take off the the shoes. Slow your roll, Moses. As you come close to me, you need to recognize something about me. I'm the one who is unlike anyone else. And it's just this extraordinary moment where Moses begins to have an understanding of who God is. And we begin to see that as God's revealing himself, he's this holy, epic, awesome, other than anyone or anything else, God. And the story continues. And so you fast forward and the big showdown in Egypt happens and God sets his people free. And now they're rolling into the the journey trying to step into this land that God had promised to their ancestors years and years and years and years and years and years years, a long time ago. And there's a lot of things that happen. It's a messy story, and the people don't always trust God, and it doesn't always go well, and he gives them these Ten Commandments to represent, here's how we're going to work together, and then Moses breaks the commandments because he gets mad at the people. It's like us, family dysfunction, that's them. But there's this moment in Exodus 33 where, where God is talking with Moses, and Moses is like, unless you go with us, how will we be set apart from any other people in the world? And Moses says to God, God, show me your glory. Like, I want to see you. And when Moses asks for God to show him his glory, he's not asking. You can keep, he's not asking for, um, like, his Heisman trophies. In the Hebrew, when it says, show me your glory, what Moses is saying is, I want to see the beauty of everything you are. And Moses and God have gotten to know each other. And so God's like, okay, Moses. But here's the deal. No one can see me and live. You're like, whoa. And so God says to Moses, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to come and meet me on the mountain, and I'm going to put you in this rock, and I'm going to cover you with my hand, and then I'm going to have my glory pass, and you can look and see the back of me, because that's about all you can handle. And we're like, what is this? Like, God, you're, like, you're so epic and beautiful. Like, I would think, I want to see beautiful things. Like, when you see a sunset and your breath is taken away, wouldn't you just want to stay in that moment? Unless that sunset would kill you. <laughs> and we're like, what is going on right here? And, and the reason that this is going on is that God's glory, his otherness, his holiness is too great for us to experience as we are. So because here's the dilemma for us. Who we are and how we are are in a state of conflict. Because what we're told is that God created us in his image. He created us to be like him so that we would know him and walk with him, that we would see him in all his beauty and wonder and splendor, and then we would be like him in this world so we would reflect his glory in this world to one another, that we were created for this moment of beauty. And that would be our greatest joy in life, would be to know God and be in relationship with him and reflect him. But the story went south real fast, if you know the beginning story, because the first parents, they did not trust God. 
They made a fateful decision to walk away from God, to do the one thing God said not to do. And God said, if you do this one thing, you'll experience death. And I didn't create this for you. I don't want this for you. And they went their own way. And in that moment, something broke in us as a race. And now we all walk in the reality of that brokenness. So who we are, who we were created to be, but how we find ourselves in this world are in conflict. And we're in a world of hurt if we're left to our own. There's something in us that's broken as a human race which means we all need serious help if we're going to reclaim our identity as human beings, if we're going to become the people we are created to be, which is why we're really big about Jesus here, because when Jesus steps into the story, he makes all these incredible claims, and one of the things that Jesus said about himself is that he came that we could have life, life to its fullest, that as we begin to walk with him and follow him, we can step back into that life we were created for. One of Jesus' closest friends, one of his first followers, John, writes this about Jesus and what he had learned and experienced about who Jesus is. He writes this, John writes this in one of his letters called 1 John, and he says this about Jesus. He goes, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. So this is what, hey, we hung out with Jesus, and this is what Jesus told us. God is light, and there's no darkness in him at all. He's describing God's glory, the same glory Moses saw on the mountain. And so John says, here's the deal. We're lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We're not practicing the truth. But if we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. That's fascinating. If we're walking in the truth of who God is, not only will we have relationship with him, it'll restore our relationships with one another. And how do we do this, John says, by the blood of Jesus. It's his son who cleanses us from all sin. That Jesus took upon himself the brokenness of all of us. He faced the death that comes for all of us. And then he defeated that death so that we can put our faith and our trust in him and walk into the hope of a new life with him. So we can see the glory of God when we begin to encounter Jesus because Jesus is at work in our story. But Moses doesn't have this yet. So God's like, just stay in that rock, buddy. (laughs) Stay there so you'll be safe. Because I'm a holy God and things are still a mess and I haven't reset everything just yet. And then the story continues for Moses because God is about to tell him not just his name, but God's about to tell him what he's like. And so now in Exodus 34, God wants to meet with Moses and he's going to appear in this glorious cloud and he's going to tell Moses more about himself. And so here's God self-identifying for all of us. Exodus 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him with Moses. And he called out his own name, Yahweh. And the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And so here's God self-identifying, helping us understand, Moses, not only am I epic and other, not only am I holy, not only am I unlike anyone or anything else, but I'm also loving I'm full, of un, I'm full of faithful love. I'm full of compassion and mercy. And if we want to know, God, what are you like? This is God telling us what he's like. 
I'm unlike anything or anyone you've ever experienced. I'm awesome, and that's not a brag. That's the truth. And I am full of love and compassion to a thousand generations. But if you're anything like me, you got hung up on that last part. Right? God, that sounds awesome. What? God, that sounds incredible. That's great. What? What, what do you mean? What's, what's with this whole not excusing the guilty thing and, and laying the sins of the, of the parents onto the next generation? Because, you know, like, have you ever, like, actually held a Bible and made notes in your Bible? Like, you highlight the stuff that you like, or if you're on the online, you can do that. If you're just sometimes like, I'd like a black highlighter, please. Because <laughs> honestly, like, that, like, what are you, what? And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about that sometimes we'll see things that God says, and we have to wrestle with them. This is something we got to wrestle with. we got to wrestle with the implications of this. Let's wrestle with something that seems so odd to our modern ears. And I think part of the reason it seems so odd to our modern ears is that we have a very popular notion of what love is in our culture. And love is simply this. It's all good. Do whatever you want. Like God's some giant grandfather in the sky passing out lollipops to everyone. But I don't know, I watch the world and I'm like, I don't, I don't think it's all good. I don't think the stuff going down in Afghanistan is all good. How could that be a good God who just says, here's lollipops? Like, we have to wrestle with this. And see, I think the amazing thing is that we see God revealing himself to us as holy and loving. And those aren't in contradiction. Those are in compatibility of who he is, which is why we need God in this world We need a God who is holy, who is so good and so great that he's not caught up in the brokenness of this world, that he is above it and beyond it, and it doesn't affect who he is, but he has an effect on how things are. We need a God who's able to deal with the brokenness in this world, a God who can deal with the injustices, a God who can deal with the wrong, a God who can deal with the evil and things that we see in life all around us. I mean, have you ever just seen something that was so wrong and you're like, God, fix it? And yet if I want God to fix the brokenness in the world, guess what that also means for me? Oh God, you got to also deal with the brokenness of me. Yeah, slow your roll. You're on holy ground. But we also need a God who is loving. A God who meets us in our brokenness. And can begin to do a work in our story and lead us out of that brokenness into something really good to somehow bring us back from this death we're all walking into and bring us back into the hope of a new life with him. So as we wrestle with this, this is why we need a God who is holy and loving. So first of all, let's make sure that we don't get thrown off by a disproportionate thing of what God just said. Even if we could never understand what God's talking about when he says, I, I, I put the sin of the parents onto the third and fourth generation. Do you remember the part he just said before that? Unfailing to how many generations? My love to how many? Thousands. So even if I don't understand that, I'm going to lean into the proportion. A thousand far outweighs three to four. But I don't think it's as hard to grab a hold of as we often might think as we look at what God's saying here. Because I think if we're honest, we've all felt the reality of what God is talking about. And have you ever ever felt the effects of the choices that the generations that preceded us have made? 
How many of you have parents that have flaws? Yeah, right? If they're in the room, I know it's an awkward question. You can just kind of go like, I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> Man, remember that when you were a kid and you suddenly realized that mom and dad don't have it all put together? Like, that's kind of a devastating day. And as a parent, I remember the day when my kids realized I don't have it all put together. Oh. See, I think we can understand what God's talking about because broken choices don't simply impact us. They impact the world around us and the people around us. There are issues in my life that are my issues because I've, I've stepped into them and I've embraced them, but they were already there before I came into the world because they were issues in my parents' life. Like, I know there's things that I struggle with as a man because I've seen my father struggle with those things as a man. And I've un- as I've understood the story of my grandfather, I know my grandfather struggled with those things. And I'm sure it goes back beyond him. I mean, have you ever just wrestled with an addiction in your life? And you're like, why do I just gravitate towards this thing? Maybe it's because you're not the first one in your family line. And see, I think we understand what God is saying here. He's not saying, I am punishing. He's saying the reality of sin is so pervasive that it will continue on into the generations that follow. But here's the deal. I'm a loving God. I'm a faithful God. I can do a work in the story. I think what God is looking for in the generations is for one generation to stand up in their family line and say, it ends with me. It will break with me. I'm going to step into the faithful love of God and ask him to do a work in my story so that my generations are changed forever. See, that's the hope of what God's talking about here when we see this idea of who he is, that we can go to him and we can ask for his help. We can ask for his compassion and his mercy and his forgiveness. And a God who is holy and loving says, let's get to work. I love how John Mark Comer captures this in his book, And this is the one that I'm recommending that you get a hold of. It's so good. He says this about this whole idea. He says, the hope of to the third and fourth is that we don't have to repeat the mistakes of our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. We can get off the hamster wheel, reclaim our humanity. We don't have to stay stuck If you're living under the shadow of generational sin, you live in terror that you'll grow up to be like your father or mother. Remember that moment when you were maybe talking to your kids, you were talking to someone, and you're like, I sound just like them. Hmm. Listen, what was true of your parents doesn't have to be true of you. You can change the the trajectory of your family line here, now, with Jesus. You can bring your sin to Jesus, repent, and watch the handcuffs fall off your wrists and clang to the floor. What hope we have because of who God is and how God wants to work in our story. So how do we encounter this God? Like in Moses' day, he went up to the mountain to find God, to to spend time with him. But not everyone got to do that. That was just something that was cool for Moses. What hope do we have that we can encounter this God who is so epic, so amazing, so full of unfailing love for us? We have every hope that we can encounter this God because this God doesn't stay on the mountain. This God came to be with us. His name is Jesus. He's the game changer. 
He's the transformer. He's the one who changes our story. I love what his first followers recognized about him. So again, his friend John, he writes this about Jesus. In John's account of the life of Jesus, this is what he says in John 1.14. He says, so the word, he's talking about Jesus. The word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. Who does that sound like? God. And here's Jesus, full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. See, Moses had to climb the mountain to encounter God. But in Jesus, we realize that God has come to be with us and to be for us. I love what Jesus prays in John 17 about this whole idea. He's talking to the Father about his followers and what he's come to do. And so in John 17, 25 through 26, Jesus says this, O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I have revealed you to them. What that really means, what he's saying there is, I have revealed your name. I've made you known to them. And I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. See, that's the hope that the the love of God can be at work in our stories as we begin to step into new life with Jesus. And see, when we encounter Jesus, we discover the one who reveals God to us. It's through Jesus that we see the elephant's. It's through Jesus that we see God for who God really is. And not only is Jesus God with us, he's God at work in us. See, I've revealed them to you, he said. I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be with them. See, with Jesus, not only do we encounter God, but we can step into this relationship with him where we now begin to be transformed by And see, that's the hope that we can have. So can can you see why I'm kind of excited about this? Because when you begin to see God more clearly, you begin to see all of life more clearly. And when God shows up in the story, you begin to realize that he's at work now, and you're not on your own. You haven't been abandoned. He's saying, I can change your story forever, and it won't just be your story. It will be your kids and your grandkids. I can change generations. Because my love is unfailing. My love is faithful to a thousand generations. So how do you respond to that? How do you respond when you begin to encounter God showing up in your story? How do you respond when Jesus is tapping you on the shoulder and saying, I've got life for you? You know how Moses responds when God says all this incredible epic stuff about his name? Exodus 34, 8. You know what Moses does? And Moses fell flat on his face and worshiped God. Because when you see the glory and wonder and awe of who God is, and you realize that he is for you, the only thing that makes sense is to say, I'm yours. I'm in. Whatever you want to do with my story, here I am. Whatever you have for me, I want all of it. Show me your glory. Show me who you are. Show me your name so I know who I can become because of you in my life. And so let's do this right now. 
Let's go into this time and not just sing a song, but let's worship. Let's thank God for who he is and what he's done in our life, what he's doing in our story still. So let's stand and sing. Let's stand and worship. And so, Father, here we come. We come to you as we are, knowing that you can change the story. We come to you because we know that you are holy and good, and we know that you are loving, and we can find life in you. And so we step into this moment, confidence in your love for us, your love that is for the generations, a thousand generations. And so we come into this place asking that you would have your We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.